You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. You're listening to 93.1 Life FM. You're tuned to On The Level, Life FM's radio magazine. Providing you with a healthy balance of news, music, entertainment and information to keep you and your family on the level. Here's Arthur Shorthall. You are listening to 93.1 Life FM. The time is 12 minutes past the hour of 11 o'clock. There is an interesting book. It's called Who Am I? Human Identity and the Gospel in a Confusing World. It's a book written by Thomas Fretwell. We spoke to Thomas a couple of weeks ago. He was running through his book. So amazing points in the book. It covers, amongst many other things, what does it mean to be human? What is it that makes us so unique? Is there any meaning to life? He looks at all this in the context of, of course, very much... You know, we are created, we are flawed, but we are redeemed by what God has done for us on the cross. Last couple of times, the last time we spoke to Tommy, we spoke about very much the, the nihilism of various atheists in terms of what is the purpose in life. You know, the, the meaningless, uh, In some, uh, it could be said from the point of view of coming from nothing and going to nothing. And of course, the importance as well of having a right starting point in terms of our origins of belief when dealing with this key question. Uh, we're going to continue to run through the book and Tommy joins us again on the line. Tommy, thanks so much for joining us once again. No problem. Thanks for having me. Uh, Tommy, we're running through the book. It's quite interesting. I was just flicking through the chapters there. It's, as I say, it speaks about who we are, basically. We are created, we are flawed, but we are redeemed. We're running through the book. Tell us, if you would, in terms of the book uh, speaks in chapter four. It's very much a, a futuristic version of 2075 AD, a sort of imaginative novelette as such. Uh, give us an understanding where you're actually going with this. Yeah, so th- this is sort the way I've uh, done this. Uh, I've introduced this imaginative. It's a completely fictional story, and the idea is to to really just help us to think about what can happen when worldviews that have a, a a faulty view of humanity actually are taken to their logical conclusion. So in the sort of first eight pages, however long this story is of that chapter, you see a sort of dystopian future ruled by an autocratic regime where religion is actually seen as an infection of the mind. It has been completely outlawed. And of course, without uh, if you are religious, then you will not be granted citizenship and you have to live outside of uh, the sort of the formalized cities. There's a secret police and there is a forced acceptance of sort of government values. And some of these things may, and they were written for this purpose, sound actually a little bit familiar to various things that happen in our culture. And the idea is if we if we go back through history and we actually look at times when regimes have surfaced and actually come to power that do hold these sort of aberrant views of humanity and we do actually see things like this happening so that the story sort of lumped them all together into this one sort of future dystopian world with the sole purpose of helping us to think that uh, when we take something to its logical conclusion if it's to do with humanity and if it's a wrong view and and from my perspective that means one that is not founded on the biblical worldview then we can actually have some very tragic and quite scary consequences coming from that Indeed, we live in a society very much that proclaims equality, that proclaims tolerance. But, you know, when it comes to the point of one expressing views that go against the, as you say, the the standard view of tolerance and acceptance, then it's not very accepting and tolerant, one could argue, perhaps. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. And and this is the thing. And and I do make that that point in the book that the only people that uh, 
seem to be not tolerated are ones that claim a, an exclusive view of truth. So everyone's tolerated except the exclusivists. It's it's a funny old world that we live in like that. But that is where we are in our culture today. And the, the point of the story, and as we sort of progress through this chapter, the point I really wanted to emphasize is that your worldview, the way you see reality, the fundamental foundational beliefs that you have, that you interpret the world through, we call them our biblical glasses, maybe. Of course, if you're looking at the world through naturalism or atheism or any of these other worldviews, it will affect what you think of humanity, and ultimately what you think will affect what you do. So when we come to an issue like human equality, equality is a, it's one of these buzzwords today in our culture, isn't it? Everyone thinks mm. it's something that should be championed in that, in that respect, and obviously I fully agree human equality should be. The point is that it's only, as I see it, that the biblical worldview, a worldview that is founded on the Judeo-Christian ethic, that can actually have a consistent basis for proclaiming the equality of all peoples. And what we've actually seen in history is that when people comes to power that don't stand upon the Judeo-Christian worldview, there's no reason for them to actually believe that human equality is a thing. If I could just quote to you very quickly the, the, the famous atheist Friedrich Nietzsche, he, he had a very famous quote where he said this. He said, another Christian concept, no less crazy, from his perspective, obviously, the concept of equality of souls before God, this concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. Mm -hmm. So you see, this is an atheist, and, and he gets it. He understands what we're saying here and, and what Christianity entails. It's not just a sort of religious uh, spirituality, a way of living. It's much more than that. It's an entire worldview, uh, and it has at its foundation this sort of understanding that all men are created equal because they're, they're, they owe their existence to the Creator God. And, and this is something that other worldviews just cannot offer. You mentioned, of course, you, you mentioned briefly about regimes kind of rising that are intolerant of opposing views. So nevertheless, you know, whatever happens, of course, we've seen the past as well, the whole consequence of devaluing human life, which can inevitably happen if intolerance is so endemic amongst you know, society, intolerance of opposing views. Of course, there, there is a very much, one could argue, the, the development of quite secularism, you know, rabid secularism, its roots and its fruits, you know, in terms of, you know, the image of God and how it all is being brought forth. Uh, of course, we very much in us, your book speaks about this, we all have an inherent sense of morality. So, of course, you know, we live in a society where, you know, we see today relativism and, you know, what your book describes as infantile post-truth culture. Uh, tell us about this mm. in terms of how it very much, this is not able to properly critique such evils. Tell us about this, if you would. Yes, yeah, sir. Let, let me just back up a, mo a moment and, and we'll get to that if I could just sort of trace it because it sort of flows logically from from the point about so just give me an example. I'll just give you an example of one of these regimes. Obviously, during the Second World War, we saw the Third Reich. They had a very different view of humanity, particularly when it came to certain minorities, the Jewish people and a few a few other different minorities. They didn't see them as fully human. They had this concept of the master race. Very easy to see how a different and flawed understanding of humanity affects how we uh, interact with people. We, we saw, obviously, in the book I mentioned a little bit about the, the communism of Stalin, of course, based on a very atheistic worldview. And there's a famous writer called Solzhenitsyn. You might have heard of him, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was in, in a gulag imprisoned under the Soviets. He, he made a very interesting comment. He said this. He said, if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible, the main cause of the revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of my people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men 
have forgotten God. That's mm. why all this has happened. And I love that quote because he, he really gets down to the basis of what we're talking about here. They moved their worldview from God, from the Bible, and they had a faulty view of humanity. And as we move that worldview into a larger culture, as you were saying, we will see the fruit from that. You see, as a culture, we're moving away from our biblical heritage. We're moving away from that foundation that we had where it was almost a given that all men were created equal, and obviously this comes from the Word of God. It comes from Genesis, in fact, where God says, in his image, he created man. That's where we get this equality from. And as a culture, now that we are really ignorant of that or we're purposely moving away from it, we will continue to see uh, the devaluing of human life in many ways. And we're already seeing that in our culture. And these are the fruits of a culture that does that is not founded on the Word of God. We call it a culture of death. Whereas the Bible is the book of life, it's a God of life who wants to give us life in its fullness. And if we stand upon that, then we see the protection of life played out in society. And you can sort of see the dichotomy between these two views. And, and I, I believe that's where we're heading as a culture. Of course, I still hold out hope that as the gospel is proclaimed, hearts and minds can be changed and we can come back to the word of God. Mm-hmm. Your book also speaks, of course, about you know free will, biological determinism. It's it's quite in depth by the sounds of it, in terms of how it analyzes our situation. It also speaks, of course, about the, the complementary design of male and female. You know, binary gender. The the book speaks of it's of course it's being determined determined by God, but it's under attack in the in the culture. So tell us if you would about what you speak about in terms of confusion of identity and so on. Yes, we're very much in a post-truth culture now in in some respects. And what this this word was really coined, I believe it was word of the year, in fact, by the Oxford Dictionaries a few years back. What they're really referring to there now is that we're in a culture where facts do not determine truth. People actually determine their own truth more often than not by their emotions. And you see, this is what I, when I was talking about in sort of an infantile approach to decisions and morality and truth. If people are being led by their emotions, emotions are sort of very fickle things, very important things, but they're very fickle. They can go up and down and different things affect them differently. So they're, they're, they're not really the best way to determine truth, whereas we have a worldview that sort of has a revealed revelation, a solid standard, and that's what we have as truth. But you see this playing out again. Now that uh, we talk about the, the gender binary there that you were talking about, that everything is up on the table and mm-hmm. people are sort of free to pick and choose according to their own whims and emotions. And we just can't affirm that as Christians, and therefore we will be considered intolerant under the new definition of what it means to be tolerant. What it really means is to affirm the sort of the values that are being pushed down on us from the top. Mm-hmm. And obviously, as Christians, we're not going to do that. It really goes back to the book of Genesis, again, in, in my understanding, because remember, it was the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where we get this teaching that man is made in the image of God. And also we get that we get the verse where it says that he created the male and female mm-hmm. in the in the image of God. So, so the actual gender binary that we have that is so much under attack in our culture today is actually sacred to the to the Lord. It's part of his revealed truth. It's part of his makeup for how he made humanity. And in many ways, male and female complementary together reflect something of the image of God. So the, the issue for me, again, as all of these issues do, they come back to the issue of biblical authority. And as we see again and again, most of these issues are rooted in the book of Genesis. Because Genesis is foundational to all Christian doctrine. It's where we have the origin of sin, the origin of death, the origin of marriage, the origin of gender, the origin of anthropology, the origin of all these doctrines that we see played out through the Bible. They all find their root in Genesis, which is why so many of these cultural battles as we see them 
all seem at some point to be able to be traced back to the book of Genesis. And, that, and that's why I believe it's very important that we have a proper understanding of the book of Genesis. Hmm. Interesting. We live in a society, particularly in the Western world, where the, you know, the divide between rich and poor is growing and growing. We live in a society, one could argue that, you know, we can have what we want and we can have it now. And we can be what we want and we can create the environment around as we want it. But of course, there's very little looking inwards, inwardness, inward, I should say, at our own br- broken nature. Of course, your, sp- your book speaks about how and why the image of God in us is broken through sin. Explain to us that, about what you're speaking about in that, if you would. Yeah, sure. So, so there's a whole chapter. I believe the one we were just talking about starts off with, it's called I Am Created. And this is the concept of, of mankind created in the image of God. And of course, this is true of all, all humanity. And the next chapter is called I Am Flawed. So th- this is the sort of the uncomfortable aspect of humanity that we do need to face head on if we are to have a proper biblical worldview. See, there's much in the world of trying to help people, you know, self-love and all these movements, self-esteem, and I'm not, not making a point about that, but we do need to understand that although we are made in the image of God, and that comes with all the inherent worth and dignity and value that is, you know, to every human being, we are also broken. Our image has been flawed by sin. And again, this goes back to what I was just saying. Where do we learn about this? What happened to the world? It's right back in Genesis chapter 3. You'll notice it's the first 11 chapters of Genesis again. We call this event the fall of man. And it's one of the most important biblical doctrines that we need to understand to have a biblical worldview. It's the whole reason why we have the good news that we call the gospel. It's because of this bad news here in Genesis chapter 3. And this is how we, as Christian apologists and Christians in this world, this is how we explain death and suffering in the world, which Mm -hmm. is, if you've ever engaged with anyone from outside of our worldview, that's one of the most serious questions that they have. And it is a serious question that we need to be able to have a good answer for. The fool explains both natural evil and moral evil in that respect. This is why we see these things. It was not as God originally created it, but it is a fallen and cursed and broken creation. And it all comes back to that event there with Adam. And I'd say it's contingent upon a historical Adam. Um, again, a very quite an unpopular doctrine, becoming more and more so in today's church. It's becoming very popular to deny the historical Adam. Of course, as soon as you do that, uh, you, you open up sort of a whole can of work, a whole nother set of problems that impact everything that we understand about humanity. And I would also say the gospel, because like I said, the gospel is that we see proclaimed throughout the New Testament finds its roots right back in the book of Genesis. So we mustn't separate these two. And uh, again, I see that the whole attack on Adam these days is something that we need to take very seriously. It's interesting, of course, we live in a society where very much the focus is turning more and more towards fixing the, you know, the aesthetic brokenness, the tangible brokenness. But there seems to be very little responsibility being taken, less and less so as time progresses, for our own wrong and for our own brokenness, for our own sin. Of course, there's only one answer for this, isn't there? There's only one answer to, you know, to sin slavery. Yeah, absolutely. And we as Christians, we are the ones that have that answer. You know, we are the ambassadors for the gospel. We have the message of truth and we are commanded to proclaim this to the whole world. And that will take... uh, you know, take around the world that looks different in different ways. But ultimately, it's the message of the gospel rooted in the history of this world that finds its foundation in the history in the book of Genesis that we are proclaiming to people. And that is the hope for the world. Remember, last time we talked, I shared with you some statistics, didn't I, about the hopelessness in in the younger generations in our country today. But we also looked at the verse in, in in 1 Timothy, I believe, where it says that Jesus is our hope. 
Mm-hmm. You know, he, he is the answer. That is the whole point. He came at the appointed time to die for the sins of the world, and he showed that he defeated death, death that came into the world from Genesis chapter 3 onwards. He defeated that. It's the last enemy. It's done. His resurrection proved that. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. And this is a message that is needed in our generation more than ever now, as we're sort of moving away from our biblical heritage. In many ways, this might sort of offer a better opportunity People don't have any church baggage. They're just sort of, they can hear the gospel fresh and the gospel still has power because we know that the word of God is living and active. We know from Isaiah that God's word will never return void. So as a church, we need to be standing more than ever now on the authority of the word of God, the whole word of God. I'm talking from Genesis 1 to 11 all the way on, proclaiming a consistent worldview where we can explain not only the existence of evil, why we object to it, why we, why it hurts us, why it grieves us, but then offer hope, light in the darkness, that it has been defeated mm-hmm. and one day it will be removed from our presence completely. Interesting, of course. Uh, in chapter six, I understand your book, it has Bob Marley, Rastafarian Bob Marley, no doubt. Mm. You're uh, quoting words of his redemption song. Tell us why you chose the words of Bob Marley's redemption song. Uh, to be honest, it was part, part nostalgia on my on my half there because uh, it was a song I used to listen to a lot in my younger days, but also one that it, if you ever listen to sort of to Bob a lot of Bob Marley, you'll notice there's a lot of biblical lyrics, a lot of themes that are taken from the Bible. Now this is because he was a Rastafarian, he had a Rastafarian faith and there's sort of a mixing there of biblical beliefs with the novel elements of Rastafarianism. But that song, one of his most famous songs, Redemption Songs, where he's singing about being released from, from mental slavery, from physical slavery. It really was just a good introduction, sort of a link with contemporary culture that served as a stepping stone for me to actually go in and explain what we mean when we talk about biblical redemption. Because obviously Marley's song falls short of explaining biblical redemption. It's much, much more than that. Uh, And in the book, after I've dealt with the subject of being created in the image of God and then mankind being fallen, that those two things are common to all humanity, whether you're a believer or whether you're not a believer, you're still created in the image of God and you're still a, a fallen person. Now, the book then sort of shifts gear and it moves into what looking at specifically what Christ does for your identity. So what the gospel offers. And that's why we start now to see topics like I am redeemed. I am loved. I am adopted. I am called. And so it shows you that with the hope that the gospel offers, we are given a, a, an identity that is far beyond anything the world offers and really far beyond anything that we could imagine. But it starts with understanding one of the, the beautiful doctrines of the Christian faith, which is redemption mm-hmm. and there's a whole chapter on that in the book of course your book speaks as well about identity at the identity we take uh, it being rooted in god being the best identity we could have of course in society very much it's our nature one way or another to have an identity but you know males can very much have the identity in what they do and their career so on females it could be argued could be could, could be similar but perhaps more so in terms of relationships but nevertheless their identity that you speaks about identity being in god it's purchased through the blood of the lamb it's purchased through jesus that's it's very much if we have an identity in god that's not an identity that will fade or tarnish that'll be an identity that will last and sustain us tell us about that if you would yeah so i mean this is really you summarizing the theme of the whole book there as we look around the world people are scrambling around to find their identity somewhere to sort of hang their hat like you said a lot of us do it with our jobs some of us do it with our communities some of us even do it with our churches in that in that respect it's what we do however all of these things you'll notice that they're not consistent throughout your life 
you change jobs, you change friends, you change churches, all these different things. So it's not an objective standard for a, a proper identity. And my book argues that the only standard and true, lasting, consistent identity that we have is the one that Christ has prepared for us. So again, it looks to Jesus Christ and the gospel as that which will never change. It's our anchor, it's our faith, and all of the, the benefits that we get at salvation, in, in a theologian would call these things positional truth, that we're raised into the heavenlies with God, we're redeemed, we're blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places from, from the book of Ephesians there. All of these things are given to us, they're part of our identity now when we believe on the gospel. So this is why yeah, we are, I want to point people to Christ as the answer to the question, not only what it means to be human, but how does that actually benefit me practically in this world? Yeah, it, we could talk about this quite at length. Before we, in just one particular topic, before we finish it up, tell us, your book mentions penal substitution, a ransom paid. Just summarise that first, if you would, uh, in terms yeah. of what it means. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this is, we, we deal with this a little bit in the in the redemption chapter. I mean, this is a very, like you said, we could talk about this for a long time. This is the, 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 the theological doctrine that our sins have been paid for on the cross. And again, it goes back to Genesis when death and sin entered this world. You know, the wages of sin is death. You know, all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God at some point. So we need a redeemer. We need that mediator who can represent us to God. And this is the whole message of the gospel. When Jesus Christ came as that uh, atonement, as that sacrifice for us, he was actually taking our place. He was dying the death for us on the cross that we deserved. And therefore, once the sin has been paid, this is the heart of penal substitution. It's, you know, penal and then substitutionary. He was the substitutionary sacrifice for us. Once that was accomplished, this this is why he can then say it is finished. And this is why the proclamation of the gospel is now to go out to all peoples and all tribes, all tongues, all nations, everywhere throughout the world, because it is finished. He has paid it. All we have to do in that sense is accept uh, and hear, respond to the message of the gospel. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. And again, it's another one of these doctrines that is, is under attack today from various elements. And again, for me, it all comes back to actually understanding the book of Genesis. Quite often you'll find that that people who disagree with these sorts of doctrines are the same ones that don't take Genesis seriously. So there's definitely a link there, but it's at the heart of Christianity. It's one of the most amazing truths in Christianity. It's what we want to proclaim to the world. And ultimately, I believe it is the foundation of our identity as born again believers. Interesting enough, of course, your book very much speaks about what does it mean to be human? What is it that makes us so unique? Is there meaning to life? Of course, the very much point of it, no doubt, is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're knit together in our mother's wombs because God has given us a purpose, not a meaningless, but a purpose. So it's, it's, it's great to hear you speak about these points because it gives a hope, that very fact that we have a purpose and mm. it gives us a hope. So, Thomas, it's quite interesting. There's a huge amount of more stuff to discuss about your book and I do hope you'll come back to us again to speak to us about it because there's quite a, quite a lot more stuff to discuss in that. But who am I, human identity and the gospel in a confusing world? Where can people get a copy of your book, Thomas? Yeah, so it's available at quite a lot of different outlets. I, I would advise people to go to creation.com uh, to buy your copy from creation.com. This is Creation Ministries International uh, in the first place. You, you'll also find it on, on other book sites like 10 of those or even Amazon you can get there. But but the primary place would actually be to uh, creation.com if possible. Thank you. And you can find more in, information about it on my website, uh, which is just thomasfretwell.com. And so, yeah, feel, feel free to contact me through that if you have any questions or, or, or want anything like that. Thomas Frederick, spell your surname so people can get access to that website if you would. 
Yeah, so it's F-R-E-T-W-E-L-L, thomasfretwell.com. T-H-O-M-E-S, yes, thomasfretwell.com. Tommy, I do hope you will join us again soon because there's quite a lot more to talk about about your book. It's quite a fascinating topic. So I just thank you for your time and we hope to talk to you again soon. No problem. Thanks for having me. You're listening to 93.1 Life FM. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.